Welcome to The Word Revealed with David Palmer and Scott Burns, where we talk about everything Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Let's join the conversation. David, how you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. It's nice to see you again. It's good to be with you. David, today I'm thinking about that person who goes to a group Bible study and realizes in the middle of the study uh, that some people's Bibles sound a little bit different than other people's Bibles. Can we talk about Bible translations today? That's a great topic and a really important one. It's an it's a, a important part of Christian history, and the translation of the Bible is uh, important for Christian faith. I know my first Bible uh, was the King James Bible. It was given to me by my church. It was a blue cover, and teacher taught me how to highlight verses in it and that sort of thing. But I did find it cumbersome as a first-grade boy to read. What was cumbersome about it? The English just was really unfamiliar, uh, it, and it, it just didn't sound the way we talked. So later, I got an NIV Bible, uh, and I found that one to be much more readable. But when we talk about translations, we're, we're obviously implying that the Bible was originally written in some other language. So what, what are the original languages of the Bible? That's right. The Bible wasn't originally written in English or whatever native language we might speak today. There are about 6,000 languages in the world that are spoken today. Originally, in God's providence, he, he decided, it was his choice, that the vast majority of the what we call the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And there are a few portions of the Old Testament that are written in Aramaic. There's a phrase in Genesis, uh, a little bit in uh, the book of Ezra, and a few chapters in Daniel that are in Aramaic. But the vast majority of the Old Testament's in Hebrew. And Hebrew, we might just want to point out, was a language that is an amalgamation of Semitic languages in the Middle East. And in many ways, it's like a trade language. And so I think it's important for people to understand that the language God picked for the Old Testament was a language that could easily be read and learned by by people. The New Testament is written in Greek, but it's not the sophisticated Greek of the philosophers. It's the Greek of everyday speech. It's called the Koine, or modern Greeks call it the Kine, the common Greek. And it's meant to be accessible for everyone. So it may sound like, wow, how could I learn Greek and Hebrew? But in fact, woven into God's design is that the Bible is accessible to everyone. So is it safe to say it's written more like newspaper magazine style as opposed to a really fancy scholarly book? That's a great way of talking about it. You think of your, you know, your common man clay tablet, you know, think of your common man uh, papyrus document uh, receipts that you have. The, the discourse level is uh, conversational. It's meant to be understood. And the beauty of the Bible is in its content. And it has a you know has a literary artistry to it of its own. The stories are well told, but they're they're not esoteric, and you don't need advanced training uh, to follow the stories of the Bible or to understand the Gospels or the letters are written for for everyone. Now you're fluent in Greek and Hebrew. You can read those very well. Aramaic, pretty good in, as well, right? 
You know, fluency is a word that is just calls <laughs> forth a lot of respect. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I tread lightly there, but I have studied, um, I have studied Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic for 20 years. So I, I feel comfortable when I open yeah. a page and those are the, those are the letters. Um, one thing I would, do, I would point out that's kind of fun, I think, is just the word alphabet. And that's a word that we have in English, we have it in a lot of global languages, but alphabet is really the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph and Bade. Mm. And it's a, it's a word that shows up from these ancient voices, and, um, and that also comes into Greek as uh, Alpha, Vita, the first two letters of the Greek alphabet. And this, this way of writing with letters is an innovation that comes from Phoenicia, and it's a dramatic change from the other writing systems of antiquity, like Egyptian hieroglyphs, which you have to have advanced training to do, or cuneiform in Mesopotamia. And both of those systems really lock the text up to scholarly elites, and the God chose to put the Bible in a very accessible mode of communication. That's good news. It is good news because he, we're supposed to read it That's right. and uh, hear it and discover who God is. But what? that, but you know, you could make the point that everyone should learn Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and I'd be fully supportive of that. Sure, but I know yeah. that's not a reality. Right. So translation matters. Well, as someone who knows those better than others, um, how what 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 is good about Hebrew, and why would God have so much of the Old Testament written in Hebrew, and what is what is good about Greek that that God wanted the New Testament to be originally written in Greek? I wouldn't say there's anything in, intrinsic to the languages that are good. I would say that the languages in themselves are, are this very accessible medium. Mm-hmm. You know, in the wake of Alexander's conquest, Greek is the global language of the first century. And the New Testament writers, you know, all of them are Jews except for Luke, um, and and yet they publish their works in this global language of of Greek, so that it would be read. So I wouldn't want to say there's something you know, intrinsic okay. or inherent to the languages, but the the medium itself is makes it so that God wants His word to be read. Amen. So people translate the those languages into English. In our case. Is that a group of people doing that? Is that an individual? How, how does that happen? That's a great question. Uh, you know, my wife is a consultant for the NIV uh, translation revision team, so I've had a chance to to see parts of that process up close. The first time that we ever hear of a translation described is, in fact, the translation of the Bible from he- the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek in what's known as the Septuagint or the translation of the 70. And that gives you a picture that this is a team effort. And it's a team effort because usually scholars will divide up portions of the Bible into different sections that they will work on, and then there is a review team that that, uh, looks at the finished translation. And so in terms of translation philosophy, there are the basic approaches are you can do a literal translation word for word or sense for sense, and every translation has to decide their continuum. If you translate word for word, then it can become nonsensical in your target language because that's not how we say it. 
if you translate sense for sense, then sometimes you have to make a decision. How would you say that in your target language? And there's always a uh, a little bit of an art. Jerome was a Bible translator, a very famous one, translated the Bible into Latin. He said translation is an impossible art. It, it's it's a it's hard work. It's a slow process, but then it makes the Bible available to everyone. And once the problem, once you do a translation, language changes. Yeah, it changes rapidly. We all, even the language that you and I speak right now, is slightly different than the language we spoke ten years ago or when we were growing up. So the task of translation is never really finished. Yeah, and you've got the culture uh, can be really different as well. I think of like uh, in Matthew 1, Joseph uh, is called Mary's husband, and yet they're betrothed. Right. And so there's just this whole little section there where culturally we're thinking and operating very differently than they were thinking and operating. And that has a has an impact on how you would translate and the decisions that you have to make. Right, right. That's very true. And then your your aim is comprehension. Uh, even, I'll give you a, a really high-stakes example. Uh, even the term Messiah, you, what does that mean? It's a Hebrew word, the, the anointed one. Uh, a Hebrew speaker would recognize that immediately, but that word is deeply resonant in Old Testament traditions, in synagogue prayers, and yet the New Testament writers, they want to keep that word because it's really important. But the word Messiah is meaningless to a Greek speaker. So what do you do? You bring it over. And Matthew just brings it over. John brings it over, and then he translates it. And I think that's something beautiful about the New Testament is that there are key words even that are carried over, and then the, they're translated for us in the New Testament. Matthew brings over the word Emmanuel. We don't know what that means. And he knows that we don't know what that means. He assumes that the reader doesn't know Hebrew. And so he says, that means God with us. So these key words um, even, uh, you might say, um, justify the act of translation in the New Testament itself. Yeah. So we're thinking about that experience where someone's sitting in a group study and they've got, everybody's got their Bible open um, and it, it, it pretty much sounds the same, but there are some differences. So I guess maybe that's where you're talking about the word-for-word translation philosophy versus a thought-for-thought. Thought. Is that what's happening? I think that's part of it. And then you also, translators, decide on the linguistic level or the vocabulary level. So it's not to insult anyone, but the the NIV, the New International Version, is capped at a seventh grade reading level. So they're assuming the active vocabulary of someone in, in middle school. And that the beauty of the NIV is it's very readable and it's accessible. Uh, the ESV bumps that up a little bit and you have to be in high school. It's a ninth grade reading level. But you know, neither of those translations are asking you to be a graduate student. Right. They're, they're, uh, but there's a slight difference in the register of the language um, and words that you might that you might choose. Uh, you also have the ESV makes a decision to not to over-translate is actually the, the technical term for that. They retain the syntax of the original text at the expense of English syntax. The NIV uh, often will 
change the syntax of the original in order to make it more readable. English has a preference, for example, for shorter sentences. And so the NIV sentences are shorter. Some of the Greek New Testament sentences are long. Yeah. Ephesians 1, you've got a sentence that's 14 verses long. Yeah. And most English readers are like, I can't really handle that. So they break it up for us. But the goal is to be... (laughs) Yeah, it is helpful. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, I, I wouldn't want the person in the small group who sees a slight difference to, to panic. Yeah. And to, and to think, wow, I'm in the wrong place. I'm in the wrong church. I need to get out of here. Where do I go to get the original? If you feel that way, then let me recommend a great Greek and Hebrew grammar. There you go. Uh, but, if it, but in fact, to seeing those differences can prompt great discussion for us. And those slight differences of translation. And when you see the translators slightly differ, then you know that they're trying to bring out uh, different nuances of the passage. But I would want everyone to know that the people that I know who are working in translation are godly and gifted and dedicated. And they're doing that because they love God's Word and want it to be to be known. Um, you know, I mentioned my wife's working as a consultant, so she's done a lot of really advanced study in one particular area of garments. And in Isaiah 6, there's this tremendous vision of the Lord, and Isaiah sees the Lord. And most translations talk about that he Isaiah saw uh, his robe or... Um, the edge of his robe and so the my wife was consulted on that of how precisely should that be uh, translated and uh, to talk about the um the the hem of his garment and um so sometimes you have expertise that really helps you okay david so we've got kind of our bearings now on translations and how we go from the original to what we would call our english translation there's some pretty famous translations out there. Um, think of the King James Version. Um, some people insist that that's the only version we should read. And other people found something like, in my case, the NIV, much more readable, much more understandable, and have, have gone away from the King James Version. Can you give us a sense of how the King James Version came to be and why it's a good translation and, and where it might fall short at, at this point? That's a great question. I, I would want people to think of the King James translation actually among what I would call the big three. And there there have been three versions of the Bible that have had an enormous influence and a positive one. And the first one is the Septuagint. The Septuagint translation that was done about 250 years before Jesus, that became the Bible that the vast majority of people read, and the Septuagint has influenced all of our proper names of locations, personal names that we think that we are familiar with in the English Bible have been shaped by the language of the Septuagint. So it's had this enormous influence, and yet at some point the the Septuagint version, the language changed. And so it, it's still the version that's read in in Greek-speaking Eastern Orthodox churches, for example, today. And it's readable to modern Greeks, but the language has changed a lot. 
The second of the big three is the Vulgate translation. And the Vulgate was done by Jerome around 400 AD. And Jerome was a Latin speaker. He lived in Bethlehem. He learned Hebrew. And he he felt, why should the Latin-speaking churches have to have what he called the Bible poured into a third cup, which is a really powerful image, because he knew that the Bible was given in Hebrew, it was poured, in a sense, into Greek, and a lot of the Latin versions were translations from the Greek. Both the Septuagint and the Vulgate are movements to make the Bible accessible to everyone. That's the same motivation that produces the King James Bible. The King James Bible... The vast majority of the King James Bible is the fruit of the labor of William Tyndale, who started working uh, on translation of the Bible from the Greek and Hebrew text, and he wanted, he wanted the plowman in England to be able to read the Bible. And not everyone was excited about that, though they should have been. And Tyndale's first version of the English Bible was smuggled into England inside of a, inside of a, a cotton bale. And Tyndale was persecuted for making the Bible accessible to everyone, and tragically, he was imprisoned. And in prison, he asked for two things, and we actually still have this letter. And he asked for uh, a warmer coat and a Hebrew dictionary so he could keep working. Sounds like Paul and Timothy. It does. It's deeply moving. Uh, Tragically, Tyndale was burned at the stake. And his dying words were, O Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And the Lord answered that prayer. And the King James Bible became a version that was sponsored by the King of England with the goal of making the Bible accessible to everyone. And so that is a beautiful goal. It's the same goal of the big three. But each of us have the temptation to say, well, once I've got my translation, now I want to stop all translation, and I want to ask people to read mine. And as I said earlier, the task of translation never ends. God's Word is unchanging, but the audience is is changing in terms of how language is used. And So know, the King James Version reflected the how common people language. spoke right. at that time. Right, right. Which is baffling for people when they read the Shakespearean plays because people think, I don't understand it. And yet, that was everyday English. Yeah. One interesting aspect of the King James Version that I think it's important for people to, to know is that that version is based on uh, the manuscripts that were available at the time. The first uh, critical edition of the Greek New Testament that was published by Erasmus was based on a, a collection of manuscripts that he had available at the time. The publisher of that edition you know, had a great uh, cover slogan for the edition, and he said, this is the text as we have received it, meaning from antiquity. And he called it the Textus Receptus, the received text. Now, that was the text they had received in that cluster of manuscripts, but the era of great manuscript discoveries actually happens after that time. So that happens really in the 18th, 19th century, even some into the 20th century, where there's been a, a, a great rediscovery of a lot of earlier manuscripts. So even though it's later in our time, the 
the translation basis for current versions rest on earlier and better manuscripts. And the King James Version, I just would, I, I wouldn't want to denigrate it or I wouldn't want to put it down in any way because, look, the King James came out as the answer to a dying man's prayer that God's word would be accessible. Amen. And, and, it, and the dissemination of God's word to the English-speaking world had a profound impact on the English society. And some of the tremendous changes that we think of of, of um, improving the society in England, the spread of vibrant churches, the birth of the modern mission movement, that's all in consequence of, of more people reading the Bible. If you read the Bible, you're going to become a disciple maker or missionary. I mean, it's just it's just so in there. You're gonna, but if you can access it, then then you end up making up your view of God. And so, uh, the King James, just like the Vulgate, just like the Septuagint, the Big Three, had a huge impact on the health of the church and the world. Now, that's not the only translation story in antiquity, but those I call the Big Three, and. Uh, that is to say, when God's word is translated in the language of a society, it has a huge impact on that society. Yeah. And we need to be supportive of that. And that work continues today. And I've heard you say in conversations with other people, um, you know, we, we've found more manuscripts. We have more knowledge of the culture and language. And just as in medicine, you wouldn't want to operate on someone based on medical knowledge limited to the 1600s i wouldn't yeah. i mean i've offered that <laughs> but i i would i would want the doctor to use all available resources and knowledge personally yeah and i've yet to have someone say you know i want the retro experience of <laughs> uh, so, 1611 yeah so <clears throat> when we're when we're reading a more modern translation um we're reading a more informed uh translation we're, we're reading a translation Informed in the sense that uh, our knowledge of the Greek and Hebrew language is better. Uh, our um, access to more early manuscripts is, is better. So um, I think that we have just uh, a little better information, and I think it's, I think it's responsible for Christians to uh, make use of that. Uh, one of the things that is really a neat phenomenon today in the digital age is that, you know, we have about 5,000 early Greek manuscripts, and those manuscripts are photographed, they're digitized, and uh, Dr. Daniel Wallace leads a center, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, and you can see them. You don't have to travel to the different libraries of the world. You can see digital copies, you can search them, you can you can see where the texts have minor variants and uh, slight differences, and maybe that's a topic for a whole nother podcast, but uh, how the manuscripts differ from each other. But most of the differences are things like the spelling of personal names. Uh, they're not significant or theologically significant differences. But uh, the task of translation is an important one. So back to your analogy with the small group. If you're in a small group and you see a translation that's slightly different, just ask, what, what version are you reading? And uh, maybe we can talk in a future podcast about the different uh, current English versions. Yeah, that sounds great.
Thank you so much, Scott, for joining me and being together on The Word Revealed, and thank you for everyone joining us as we continue to uh, talk about the treasure of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation and its impact on the world and our own lives. God bless you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining Dr. David Palmer, Senior Pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church in Cincinnati, and Scott Burns, Associate Pastor. Meet us here next time for another conversation on the Bible. 